Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. My guest today is Ben Saracen, ASC and BSC, an award-winning cinematographer whose latest film is Pain and Gain. A darkly comic crime film with echoes of Tarantino, Elmore Leonard, and the Coen brothers, Pain and Gain tells the amazing true story of Daniel Lugo, a personal trainer who decides that it's easier to steal someone else's wealth and lifestyle than to acquire his own. Joining forces with two other gym rats, Lugo kidnaps a rich client and tries to take over his life with hilariously catastrophic results. Based on a Miami New Times article by journalist Pete Collins, Pain and Gain plays like a Frank Capra movie with cocaine, strippers, and guns, a wicked satire on the American dream as it's imagined by three guys too lazy to actually work for it. Saracen and director Michael Bay bathe actors Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne Johnson, and Anthony Mackie in eye-popping primary colors that mock their ambitions while conveying the undeniable allure of the Miami high life they aspire to live. The end result is a comedy with tragic grandeur that's as visually rich as it is tonally diverse. I'm very pleased to welcome Ben Saracen by phone from England, where he's hard at work on a new project. So, Ben, before we talk about Pain and Gain, give me a little background on your relationship with Michael Bay, because I know you guys worked together before on the second Transformers film. Where were you at in your career at that time, and how did that job come to you? Yeah, I met Michael when he was looking for a new DP for Transformers 2. I'd been embroiled in commercials pretty much up to that point. I'd done a few smaller budget films, but the preceding few years I'd been mostly doing commercials. And from what I was told, he looked at uh, quite a few commercial cinematographers, and that's obviously his background along with music videos. Um, He liked my reel and I went in to meet him and I got offered the job on the basis of that. And that was it. We were off. And so that, you know, doing that movie with him obviously led to him calling on you to shoot Pain and Gain. Uh, What were your initial thoughts on first reading the script? Well, it's interesting. It's a true story, which is sort of mind-boggling when you see it and, and read it. The, the initial thought I had was, how on earth could this have happened? The sort of scale and the audacity of their plan, these guys, accompanied with their apparent stupidity and the application of the plan, was sort of beyond your imagination. Of it. You know, it, kind of cliche, I mean, you couldn't have written it, and it, it felt like that. I think the original story involved them trying to kidnap the guy something like seven times and failing each time and it, it just felt totally absurd and unreal but coupled with that was this sort of very sinister dark side to the story which played really interestingly I thought because you had this incredible comedic quality to what happened and and a very sort of sinister element as well running alongside each other and that felt to me, you know, very appealing and, you know, potentially a great asset to the film. So, you know, I thought visually and in every other way, it would be a fascinating ride. And what were your earliest ideas for how the film should look? Is that something you start thinking about right off the bat on first reading of the script, or do you read it first and then kind of sit with it for a while, or 
Normally, yes. I mean, uh, it's great just to read the script without too much analysis initially in terms of an approach just to get a feel for the story. I like to do that two or three times, I think, um, at least, just to get a feel of where it's going. Obviously, ideas start flowing immediately, but it feels better to really engage with material and then start the sort of evolutionary process of, you know, which direction it's going to take. You know, working with Michael is a little different to some other directors in the sense that he he has a very specific aesthetic that he likes, and it, it seemed that it would fit this story quite well. And the interesting question, I guess, about the story was, what's the perspective? You know, how do we see the story? Through whose eyes is it told? And when you think about the motivation of the lead character, in particular Daniel Lugo, um, his particular aspiration seemed to be the viewpoint for the film and you know, the fact that he was motivated really by getting as much cash as he could with uh, with a minimum of effort and the appeal of what would be achievable with that cash in terms of lifestyle and assets, let's say, <laughs> that, that dictated a sort of uh, visualization of the film. And that was the, the course that we took. And, you know, Michael's great at that sort of look. He's, you know, his films have often a very big, bold, brass style, and and it really suited this material well. Yeah, well, the first thing that struck me about the movie was the sort of brashness of it and the incredibly vibrant colors and high contrast. And um, I was wondering... I guess you say that sort of just starts with Michael Bay. What kinds of conversations do the two of you have about those kinds of things when you're formulating the look? Specifically, what kinds of things were you going for in terms of the use of color and your your palette? The interesting thing with me and Michael is we don't always agree on uh, our approach. (laughs) That can sometimes be problematic with a cinematographer and a director, but... In a funny sort of way, it can actually help the process and give a certain extra dynamic to the final result, I think. Um, you know, Michael's sensibility in those sort of things is he, he very much likes the style of a, a high contrast, as you say, very bold primary color sort of look to his movies anyway. That's something he really likes and feels comfortable with. But, you know, my general sensibility is something a little more... Uh, muted, let's say, and and less frenetic. And, we, you know, we have a lot of discussions about what's suitable for a particular scene, and he tends to want to push for a harder, bolder thing. And, and while seeing that that was absolutely the right way in this movie as a general approach, you know, I, I like to investigate the, the more subtle sort of areas and that comes through, you know, sometimes and other times it doesn't. And in a funny sort of way, I think it helps a broader dynamic to the look of the film. And, you know, sometimes in ways that won't be obviously clear initially. But we, the amalgamation of those ideas, I think, really helps the end result, ultimately. Well, I'm curious about how the look of the movie was affected by the location, because Miami's a really vivid presence in the film. And I was wondering, are there specific things about 
the light or the colors of that city that, that influenced you and influenced how the movie would look? I wouldn't say the specific things about the light and color on their own. I mean, we shot in a time approaching the end of spring, going into summer. Obviously, it's a very sunny, bright sort of place in that sense. And it lends itself to a sort of high contrast sort of look with a lot of color and a lot of inherent boldness to the place. I think what was interesting about this is, you know, there's a Miami that people are familiar with in terms of being there as tourists, in terms of seeing photographs and films from that area. Um, there's a familiarity with a certain aspect of Miami. I think we were interested in a different part of it, not exclusively, but what appealed was this sort of darker underbelly of the place as well. And we sought that out, and that really informed the look in many ways as well. Um, you know, a lot of the film is set inside, a lot at night. So I, I don't know if, you know, the boldness of the city itself influenced the look of the film in particular, or it's the other way. If it serves to support the visual sort of idea of the film, it's probably a better way of looking at it. But it certainly provides endless opportunity to explore all sorts of great visuals and not at all the familiar, iconic images you're used to from Miami. Yeah, well, that's the thing that I really loved about the movie was I felt like I was seeing a lot of sides of the city that I haven't seen in other movies. And I was curious, uh, you know, how much of it was shot on location and how much was built? I mean, was it mostly location shooting or was, or was a lot of it sets? Mostly location. I mean, you know, the interesting thing about this film, uh, for Michael, he kept saying, this is such a low-budget film, I don't know how we're going to do this. And I think we spent at least 25 or $30 million, and that's a pretty sizable budget yeah. for most people. <laughs> right. But he, he felt extremely constrained by that. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, that was interesting. What were some of the you know more interesting locations that you were able to shoot on? All sorts of places. I mean, we shot every conceivable place and variation of place, everything from Bay's house to at one end of the scale to a converted what was a dry cleaners that was about to be demolished, and we turned it into a warehouse for sexual aids, which was one of the main locations in the movie, and everything in between. I mean, there's a massive uh, variety, sort of huge visual landscape in the place and in the movie, and we really wanted to explore every corner and nook and cranny of that landscape, and uh, there's endless possibilities there, and we explored them all. We looked, <laughs> we're everywhere. We actually built the set in less than a week, maybe four or five days, in a makeshift studio. But our key location, which was the Sun Gym, which is where our protagonists sort of start their journey, they're bodybuilders in, uh, in this gym. We actually rebuilt what was a gym just north of Miami, the downtown area. And it's on one of the main roads into the city. And... Uh, the guys did such a good job. We had people turning up on a regular basis wanting to join the gym, <laughs> having, having to be turned away. But, I mean, just to give you a sort of flavor of the place and the, the sort of areas we were shooting, um, when we looked at the original location for the Sun Gym, we 
we turned up the scale with our bills cameras and various bits of paraphernalia and there was a full-on porn shoot going on in the location <laughs> while we were there so <laughs> it really informed us of what sort of uh, places we were going to be using <laughs> Well, I've got to follow up on something you mentioned there when you said that you actually shot in Michael Bay's house. Uh, what's the dynamic like on the set on a day when you're shooting in uh, the director's home? The dynamic is being very careful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was great. Actually, Michael's got a great home in Miami. It's beautiful. And um, he's pretty specific about what we can and can't do, and it involves treading very lightly, let's say. <laughs> But we made the most of it, and it was great. Shot a few really great scenes in there. It was a really spectacular house, I would say. It's lovely. Uh, well, let's talk about gear a little bit, because as I understand it, you mixed a lot of formats on this project, shooting in both film and high def with a wide variety of cameras. Can you take me through the various cameras you shot on and, and why you chose them? Yeah, there was a pretty massive array, and probably fairly unusually, we shot digital and film in a sort of uncomfortable partnership, let's say. The choice of having a number of different formats was really based on the size of the cameras rather than any real benefit of mixing formats. It wasn't the sort of film that needed a, a mixture of formats, but what we did want to do is really be able to use the cameras or use cameras in a in with as little restriction as possible physically. And that really required, you know, using everything we could down to GoPros. And the challenge then became to, you know, match the material as much as possible. Um, you know, Michael's films tend to be quite cutty and the imagery, is, as we were saying earlier, is, you know, is very bold and contrasting. It lends itself to a little more flexibility in being able to get away with images that may not be the highest quality in terms of resolution so we had everything we had we shot in the phantom obviously shot anamorphic in the movie but shot in the phantom the majority of the main camera shooting was on film we also shot a fair amount on the red and intercut scenes with red we shot on 70s we shot on gopros we shot a couple of other formats as well. <laughs> Escape me now, but we at one stage we had 22 cameras, which for a 25 million dollar movie even was um, pushing it. But had an extraordinary crew who uh, really kept going and were terrific. Uh, but as I say, you know, we really carefully selected which camera. It really came down to a point of often. What can we get away with? That was often uh, dictated by how long we thought the shot would be. The strange thing is using, you know, even the GoPros using, even though we were recording 2K, it was really interesting the circumstances in which they performed well and the circumstances in which they didn't. And it was quite surprising often what you could get away with and equally surprising what you couldn't and unfortunately you know there are moments in the film where, where you see that but you know it gave us a, a massive array of tools to really strap a camera anywhere we wanted and that was really the motivating factor in it and it, this is what helped give the film a very sort of visceral quality a connected quality and it created that sense that we wanted of really being everywhere and a very immediate um, and as I say, the rest are away, and that was really the motivation for that. 
Well, you mentioned, you know, that the GoPros, there were some things they could do and some things they couldn't. And I, I would imagine that's the case with basically all the cameras you used. What are some examples, like specifically with the GoPros, what were things you found they were strong for and what, where did you find their limitations? As with lots of digital shooting, shooting exterior in a high-key situation, they can fall apart. And I'm not specifically talking about GoPros, mm -hmm. but really, you know, digital photography is lends itself to lower key work if you're in the business of hiding its failings. And I'm talking about the lower resolution cameras. So we occasionally we'd be in a situation where, again, by the necessity for getting a type of shot, we'd be shooting a GoPro in a day exterior situation. And we avoided it at all costs. But occasionally we had to. And two times for me, I was really surprised by how much we got away with again you know using that terminology because it's really what it's about with those cameras but we did a shot where we strapped the camera to um one of the armed services guns and he's running along and the perspective of the camera's looking down the barrel back at the soldier and it was interesting because it was a day exterior situation because it had a certain degree of contrast in it we were able to get away with it maybe more than one would expect and you know the professionals amongst us will be able to pick it but I was quite pleasantly surprised how we got away with that given you know the size of that camera and its recording chip. Um, likewise we shot inserts with it often in a lit low-key interior and macro type of shots with it and again you know sometimes they fitted really well into a sequence that had been shot with only the film cameras. So it's a little hit and miss, you don't know. But again, because the film is very cutty and bold and has this hard sort of look, it's a little more forgiving of those cameras which, you know, don't really stand up to stand up in quality terms. Well, did you do anything in post to help sort of smooth out the differences between the different formats and give it a more cohesive look? No, especially. I mean, there's, you know, noise reduction and playing with contrast is obviously hugely helpful. And there are various simple fixes you can do, but ultimately you don't have a lot of leeway. Um, it becomes a choice of really how long you can use the shot for. And then the decision is if it really works effectively as a shot and needs to be in the edit for longer, it, it, uh, you sort of hope you can get away with it. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. Um, you know, if it's a great shot and it was shot in the GoPro and it's, it's a decision then, you say, well, do we just go with it or do we not? And if it's a great shot, generally speaking, it's going to be in the movie. Well, I'm curious how your relationship with the actors plays into this, because a lot of the shots in the movie are so linked to the individual characters' points of view that it looks like you've actually got cameras mounted to the actors' bodies. And I'm wondering if that's the case, and if so, how do you work with the actors to get the shots you need when they're essentially kind of serving as camera operators on their own shots? Yeah, we did a lot of that. We did put cameras on the actors' bodies, and there's generally two approaches, and it depends entirely what you're after for the shot. There's the approach of put the camera really on the body of the actor in the correct position, and if it's a high-energy type of shot, like the shot we did of Mark running down the balcony escaping the police, I think we actually did that with a 7D on a body rig. 
Uh, it's a shot of him, and the key is to have as much dynamics of energy as possible. So we get him to do the action and you know, show him the shot and say, listen, just go for it. Give it as much energy and run as fast and as hard as you can. Other shots require, you know, the actors to, as you say, effectively work as a camera operator. And, you know, we're really in good hands with Dwayne, Mark and Anthony. And they're just fantastic at dealing with the sometimes frustrating technical requirements of those sort of shots where really the often there's little leeway with them being able to perform in, in a loose way, you know, the shots for a specific beat in the moment and they have to really be quite tired in that sense. So there was a shot of Mark where we, we rigged a camera on his sunglasses and, you know, the shot's really about what's reflected in that and it was shot for real and he had to take a very specific guided path. Uh, the other the guys had to also walk alongside him so we saw them reflect and that sort of shot is, really becomes a mechanical process in a sense. Well, the whole movie has this really great balance of being both extremely precise in terms of the look and yet also really kind of spontaneous and freewheeling. And that balance of kind of energy and precision while I was watching the movie got me wondering about how much you and Bay plan out your shots and how much is sort of done on the fly. I mean, do you guys do a lot of storyboarding ahead of time or are you kind of just responding to the moment or is it a combination of both? There's virtually no storyboarding at all. The general uh, approach is, as you say, respond in the moment and often at the last possible moment. <laughs> that creates a certain sort of chaos often that Michael likes. And I don't think he's alone in that, that it creates a certain dynamic, a certain energy on the set where it's the antithesis of, of the inertia that can sometimes happen on a film set where you get you can, can get bogged down with the process of filmmaking and that can be a very restrictive thing. It's necessary, you know, often is necessary, but, you know, Michael doesn't like that. He likes to work with a huge amount of momentum and energy. So in answer to your question, there are specific shots that won't necessarily be storyboarded but maybe pre-visualized. Uh, really the complex shots that require a lot of input from visual effects and CG elements will often be uh, prevised. Outside of that world, it's really make it up when we get there. And that does definitely create a sort of kinetic energy to the process. I mean, he, he likes to work really quickly. And that really dictates a certain sort of look and momentum to his films. I mean, at the first day of the shoot, we, I think we did 90 setups, which is really quite unusual on a big feature film. I think we averaged 60 setups a day. Now, just that in itself will dictate a lot about the look of the movie. There's just no time or um, ability to finesse a lot of things. And that's something that I think is appealing in the process. Because, you know, as I was saying, it, it creates a, a momentum of its own that then is there in the film. And it often is there as elements that are less refined than one would like, often in terms of lighting. But it also can create a huge amount of momentum in a good way. So that really is, uh, is the approach to the shoot. And it's engineered very specifically that way. 
Well, you mentioned that for a Michael Bay movie, this is fairly low budget, uh, especially compared to something like, you know, the Transformers. And I'm assuming that that also aids this kind of energy and momentum. But I mean, are there limitations to it as well? I mean, did you ever feel like you were sort of limited by the constraints you were under as a, you know, as compared to the last time that you worked with Bay on a much, much bigger movie with bigger resources? Yeah, the per diems were better last time. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, it's time. That was the huge difference. On a film like Transformers, proportionally, there is a fair amount of time that's taken with setting up special effects in particular. Now, that happens on a film like Transformers regularly. It's a big part of, you know, most, many, if not most of the days that allows other departments to also have time to prepare and uh, regroup or, you know, do whatever they need to do to sort of support their particular department and system. But um, on this film, without really a great deal of effects, we were just running and gunning the whole time. And it means that organizationally, one has to be really, really well prepared because there's no stopping. There's no stopping going, oh, well, this isn't ready, that's not ready. You just keep going, whatever. And sometimes things aren't ready, but you keep shooting. And that's really the key area that was different on this as opposed to one of the bigger films like Transformers. Well, before we wrap things up, I want to ask about a specific sequence in the movie that I, really blew me away, which is, I don't, I don't want to get into the specifics plot-wise because I don't want to give anything away, but late in the movie there's a sequence set in the Anthony Mackie character's house where the camera is kind of constantly moving in and out of different rooms and following multiple characters and multiple lines of action, and it's very elaborate, all the things that are going on at once. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I'm assuming, maybe I'm wrong, I'm assuming that that's maybe one of the scenes where you did have to kind of do a little bit of previs and more planning. And if, if that's the case, I mean, what kind of planning went into it? How did you shoot it? What was the thinking behind that whole sequence? Basically, the concept of it was really two separate scenes taking place simultaneously in the house. And the idea was really what was happening was totally separate, but somehow connected. Uh, the scenes are happening in two different adjacent rooms. So we built a track that circled, well, the set was really built around the concept of a, a circular track that would go in and out of these two rooms continually. And as you're suggesting, they, the concept really drove the construction and the design of that part of the interior of the house. And, we had uh, parts of walls that floated and uh, were reconstructed physically and in visual effects, and we shot the elements uh, actually simultaneously, which was interesting. And again, to try and not let the technical requirements of the shot drive the mood and the drama, in a sense. Um, you know, trying to do it in a simultaneous way creates a certain sort of chaos that can that can be good it may not be exactly what you'd hoped but it can give a, a sort of energy that's interesting so we would track between these two spaces continually round and round and each time we did a transition from one room to another you know the story will have advanced further and we were in a, another stage of it but it, the end result is a great feeling of flow throughout a, a process in the story it's fun works well 
Yeah, it's an amazing sequence, and it's a, it's a really great movie, so I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, talk to me about it. Oh, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, this has been Ben Sarazen and Jim Hemphill talking about Pain and Gain for the American Cinematographer Podcast. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.